Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. has always been about communicating with my deepest, most innermost part of myself. It's the act of being quiet and then tuning into what I feel and then processing those feelings by writing them down. Why do you believe it's important? Well, I believe poetry literally shapes our world. I mean, it allows us to share our experiences and our perspectives and that's an important form of expression to me. Um, I also think it's important because we as human beings, if we don't get a chance to adequately express ourselves, we kind of shrink, right? Um, imagine if some of the most important poets like Maya Angelou or Nikki Giovanni or W.S. Mervyn didn't get a chance to express who they were. We wouldn't be able to be blessed with the masterminds that they became to be. And so I feel like at the same time, their poetry helped us as listeners to grow, and they were a crucial part of our development as writers, mothers, fathers, teachers. And so poetry literally has the ability to cultivate us as human beings. Oh, very nice. I like that. What are some of the predominant themes of your work? Well, I love writing about family and trauma and God. Um those themes are important to me because writing about those things helped me make sense of them. So those are the things in my life that I've often had a difficult time processing. So sometimes I free write and then go back and read and realize something came out of me that I didn't even know was there. And there is healing in that for me. So I make it my business to keep going back to those themes that confuse me or put me in, you know, some type of emotional distress. Because somewhere in the poem is the answer, is the healing. Very nicely stated. I like that. Please share a poem. Okay. So um, the first poem that I'm going to share is called For Khalif. And I wrote this poem for Khalif Browder. Um, He was, uh, many, many people probably saw his documentary on HBO. He was imprisoned for stealing a book bag. Um, he always claims his innocence, but he stayed on Rikers Island in prison for three years, and then eventually when he was released, he committed suicide. So I wrote this poem for him. For Kali. A book bag, universally colored, tucked inside an orange jumpsuit, arranged as a jacket to metal doors and bed bugs chained to delinquents. 
The souls of hungry men, guilty or innocent, are built together with frantic eyes caught on the edge of paper-thin cot. Kill, beat, kill. This is the day lonely eyes are seized, ensnared on an island in a room, intangible but authentic with blue-black feelings and disarmed manhood on suicide watch. I take the number 42 bus to BCC and wonder if we have ever smoothed the edges of our faces against books and noise. I know you. You are the tongues of sanity, urban sidewalks littered with segregation and televisions that avoid speaking our truth. You are mangled atrocities, an unchecked mailbox, a registered voter left in a facility of shame. And as I pray, I can't hold you. I can't capture your beginning. A book bag, an orange jumpsuit, a language of injustice, a memory of valor. Be still now, sleep. Finish. That was beautiful. Extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Oh, I mean, in sixth grade, my teacher, Miss Nolan, introduced the class of Japanese poetry called haikus. And All right. I just, <laughs> I remember writing, I mean, I was so enthusiastic. I probably was one of the only kids in the class. <laughs> and I just remember, <laughs> you know, reading these poems and um, eventually writing and just they were coming alive in my mind. They were coming, they the, just, I was able to visualize what I was reading and writing. And it really helped me to connect to the world around me. Um, it also helped me to connect with myself and to really bring out what I was feeling inside about the world around me and, you know, things that I was experiencing. All right. Lived experiences, being able to share them are so very, very important. Where, yeah. when, and how often do you write? So I am not the type of poet that writes every day. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. I write. So I heard, I heard T.S. Eliot say one time that writing is like a beast riding his back and that when he feels that beast, he has to write. And I couldn't agree more with him. So when I feel, when I feel moved by something, that's when I start to write. I think about writing every day, but I write when I really feel that overwhelming urge to, you know, sit and put my thoughts on paper. All right. You know, I feel and the excitement you in your voice write. when you talk about writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said where I write. Um, I don't write at home because my my house is so noisy. Um, but when I do, I, so I like to write like on my way to work, since COVID, we haven't been going to work. So I tend to write late at night when the kids are asleep or early in the morning when it's quiet and still, and I can really tune in so you know what I'm feeling. What have you learned about yourself from being a writer? Oh, that's a good question. So I think one of the most um, um, important things that I've learned is that it's okay to be emotional, right, to be connected to my feelings. Um, I think that especially um, in the in the black community, it's so taboo to be 
um, emotional. Like you always hear, be strong. You're strong. You yes. can get through anything. And, you know, expressing emotion doesn't mean that you're weak. It's okay to have emotion. And I think that my writing really helped me understand that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. That is so true that in the black community, even talking about or even using the word emotion in itself, there's something inherently wrong with it. And that's not true. Yeah. That's not true. No, We're made up of our emotions. Made up of our emotions. Very nice. Yep. Please share another poem. Please share another poem. <laughs> okay. Um, this um, second poem is called Works on It. And this is an experience um, that I had working in an office, a previous office, um, at a job that I had. So Works on It. A man enters the office. I'm the first person he sees and the first person he walks past to get to the white woman sitting in the hall. The second person he will talk to when the white woman explains he must see me for the answers. As, he, as his feet retreat towards my desk, a violence begins to stir. His apology knifes resentment into my chest. He is the type of sorry that thinks it was too bad Trayvon was the unarmed one or George Zimmerman will be dead. The type of sorry that needs evidence from a black man that he's an American. The type of sorry that thinks it's women who are the inward of the world. The type of sorry that says, I thought he had a gun. And now I'm handing the man a stack of papers telling him where to sign. He thanks me without looking into my face. As he leaves the office, he runs into a friend at the door. They chat, share a brief laugh, and then his friend walks towards the white woman sitting in the hall. Finish. Mm. How does a poem begin with you, or for you, excuse me, Oh, with an idea, a form, or an image? Oh, it's always a word. So I play... Tell me more. There's something about... Yeah, it's always a word. I always play with words in my in my mind. Um, so, it, like, I remember recently, uh, well, or sometimes two words, because recently I was thinking about split open. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know where that's going. But those two words, I, I just, I've been thinking about them. And so I know eventually they're going to come into a poem, but it always begins with, like, a word. Um, very, very, very um, rare do I have the complete idea together. Sometimes I sit down and I'm, I'm going to start writing one thing and the poem totally takes a different direction and I allow it to, and it just goes where it wants to go. All right, beautiful. You know, all great writers have great writing influences. Who are some of yours and what makes them great in your eyes? Oh, definitely Nikki Giovanni first. Um, her work literally helped me to mature as a writer, but it also helped me be proud of my blackness, embrace my emotion from my work, and to make sure when I'm writing, people can learn something from my work. Um, this is what her work did for me, and this is what I aim to do for my readers. I also will have to add Amiri Baraka, Audre Lorde, um, Terrence Haynes, Camille Rankin, Worsham Shire. I mean, there's so many more, but um, those are a few that really blow me away. Those are the people that influence me usually with their language, um, 
and they take words and build an entire world around me. So, yeah. Your vision is so clear. I mean, everything that you're sharing with me, I'm just, I'm soaking it up. It's beautiful. It really, really (laughs) is. Let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. Okay. a dream it's an old for Zaire Zaire is my son my oldest son you take this you take the cereal boxes away from their fate and you fill them with purpose they come alive as trains elevators sometimes an emotional mother and as a city is built in your youth and virtue you seize its possibilities taking all the risks to inspire an old moon to harvest great beginnings I carried you once, four pounds of growing belly. My heart burned, and I was alone, but not really. You stroked my maternal odds and made me something. Each time I tried to convince myself I was better off dead. Now I buy the family-sized boxes of cereal, the ones with extra room for seats and passengers who bear sons of their own sons who are faithful to the occupation of unconditional love. And because I'm so clumsy and sensitive, I often crush the corner of the rectangular packages before I get them home. But you say, Mama, I will use them anyway. Cry in private as you go to your room and build us both a dream. Finished. To you, what are some of the prevalent ingredients that go into this into this concoction that we call a poem? What makes up a poem? Oh, that's a really, really good question. I think um, one of the things that I always tell people is um, to be sincere, sincerity. Um, I also mm-hmm. like to say rawness. So I feel for me when I'm writing um, – especially if I'm, if, since I like to write about God and trauma and family, if I'm not going to be raw and bear it all, then I'm not just going to write. Like, I think that you have to put your whole self into the poem. And if you are embarrassed and ashamed or um, whatever, then don't write it. It's, the story is not ready to be told. But definitely um, you have to bear it all. Bear it all. That is so hard sometimes, yeah. Kay. That yeah, is so it difficult is. sometimes. I mean, mm-hmm. um, what gives you the strength to do it? What gives you the strength to do it? 
Well, I had a professor in grad school who said, um, I remember a student asked, you know, I like I want to write about my family, but I'm afraid about what they're going to say. And he said, well, then, if that's the case, they should have been nicer to you. <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> because you're a writer. Like, you know, so, <laughs> so what gives me the strength is, <laughs> well, that joke. And um, I feel like, for me, it's harder to hold it in than to let it out. And I've always been the type of person that, I'm not afraid of someone's reaction. I'm not afraid to stand alone. I'm not afraid to be the only one in the room that, you know, is supporting a certain thought or feeling or whatever. So I'm okay with that. So that's what helps me write, you know, what I'm going to write. Wow. It sounds like you know yourself pretty well. Yeah, it's, it takes some time, but, yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Please share another poem. I'm enjoying this program. Please share another poem. Okay. Um, so the next poem I'm going to read is called Prayer For, and this is actually from my new book, Diary of an Intercessor. Our Father, teach me how to love without my body bruising, without Noah's flood sinking me into a boat anchored to glass. Teach me, Lord, to savor this martyrdom like Jeremiah did his tears and Elijah with his rain. Help me, Lord, to allow my knees to hemorrhage like the fingers of my ancestors, like the foundation of my maternal love, like the sedimentary soil soaked in the tears of Christ, like my body black and whole in the middle of the universe, stretching towards iniquity, looming right where you are reaching for desperate human needs. Finish. Tell us about your book, Diary of an Intercessor. The, the title to me is fascinating in itself. Tell me more. <laughs> okay, well, um, Diary of an Intercessor was my thesis in grad school. Um, it really, I think it really showcases my growth as a poet and a storyteller. Um, so each poem is its own story, and it bears its own weight. And it's pulled from my journey of self-discovery, resilience, and spirituality. Um, I talk to God in these poems, sometimes in mourning, sometimes in anger, many times in awe and longing for a deeper connection um, to understand him more, to understand myself. And... um, you know, though these these poems don't offer really any concrete solution for any question one might ask God, but they do um, offer transparency, and they work to depict the universal struggle between flesh and spirit, and they intercede for harmony. And so that's where the intercessor part comes. Um, uh, I don't. Well, I'll explain. The intercessor is someone who intervenes on the behalf of others. And I feel like mm-hmm. as a storyteller, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm sharing my experience, but I'm also, um, sh- you know, I'm sharing the struggle that many of us have between flesh and spirit. And, like, yes. there's harmony in that, you know, like, and also, you know, um, there's also harmony somewhere in that. Mm. What surprised you most about writing your book? Um. I that 
one, I knew what I want the title. I knew exactly what I wanted to call it. But also I think um, I learned to be a better editor. So um, I think that it gave me a more critical eye um, for the craft of writing. But also um, I guess the poems themselves, I didn't know necessarily that um, I would focus so much on trauma. <laughs> and, you know, okay. I, you know, I think this is when I realized that I write a lot about trauma and God and family. So, um, yeah, I think that's what surprised me the most. Well, if you had to convince a friend or colleague to read your book, what might you tell them? Um, oh, that's a really, really good question. <laughs> I'm really, I'm not. <laughs> but that's why they pay me the big bucks. That's why they pay me the big bucks, Kay, to ask the, the, the good questions. All right, I'm sorry I interrupted you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, I'm, so I'm not really good at convincing people anything, but I think that for me, um, <laughs> um, one way to convince them is actually to share a poem with them. I feel like when people do read my work, I had someone tell me that they were not really into poetry. And when they had came across my book in the library, because the thesis is in the, you know, the school library, but and when they came across my book in the library, it, it just like it started to, they read one poem and it started to pull them in. I think the best way to convince them was, was to be share something with them from the book and pull them All in right. that way. All right, very nice. I, think I should have, ask. So in other words, in, what, so in other words, I'm no, saying no, go ahead. Saying, so, you know. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Um, no. That I'm basically saying that my work can like stand on its own. All right, very nice. I should ask you whether you come from a literary background or not. I do not. So I am the first college graduate in my family. And um, I am the only writer. So wow. I, I do not. But I think that there's, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, there's other creatives in my family. We all, like, okay. you know, my mom is an amazing cook. Um, and I think that she's, like, amazing. Like, she's really creative with that. Um, my mm-hmm. sister does hair. Like, I think everyone has, like, a creative side. But no, I'm the only, um, yeah, I'm the only poet, the only writer. So, what did you learn growing up about writing? Um, that it was gonna help me get through my solitude. Okay. <laughs> I, always, like, I, I, <laughs> I always felt like a loner, you know. Um, okay. I and and that and that was okay. Like, I liked spending a lot of time alone. Um. So, yeah, like, it, you know, writing really helped me, you know, enjoy it even more. Oh, wow, that's you know, beautiful. So. <laughs> Please share another poem. Please share another poem. Okay, so um, this poem is called Truth. Truth is our grandma's silence is a piece that comes when we cannot understand her hurling items down the hall. And this volcanic pile of smoke and welted wigs was all the noise we needed to feel buried in bodies that belonged to the history of death and annihilation. To no insult like God and fear the solitude of what happens after the flood, 
after the baby is born and not wanted, and after not knowing the distinction between night and day, but to know the stench of sound and asphalt against our cheeks. Truth is, our mother's verbal passions secured our future, teaching us to remain marred and leveled with hatred for love and loyalty, to quest for freedom outside of maternal bonds by running down the hall of pity and last judgment. To go a lifetime with hurting and see only the thing that hurts. To become an audience of saints that will never reach God. To resist healing. To revolt against ourselves before dinner each night. To count the stars and not mean it. Truth is, I was never made to think. I was shaped from the image of God in helium. I keep my family's history in a photo album down the hall, in a house no one visits. My children are there. I am the kitchen. Inside me there is a stove of secrets where all the women hoard a blaze of men that only bought them fire. Burning never excited me, and I never stopped being cautious of silent women or women who never learn to keep their mouths shut. Finish. All right. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out of there, once it's out, there is not much else you can do with it to correct it or improve it. While others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it? So I'm in the middle of that somewhere. Um, I definitely believe in editing and revising especially after writing my thesis. (laughs) I had a great thesis advisor, and she really helped me with the whole editing process and to be a better editor. But I also believe that you should not become obsessed with the editing process. So I I remember listening to a poet read one time, and they said, and someone asked her, how do you know a poem is ready? And she said, I edit it for years. I just keep editing it. I'm like, that is too obsessive. So... (laughs) I think that at one point I tell myself, okay, hands off, leave it alone. And it's time to move on to something else. So I do believe in editing, but I don't believe in being obsessive with the editing. Now, your book is your second book. Mm -hmm. And based on what I've read in terms of the reviews, it's been great. How do you handle a bad review? How do you handle a bad review? Well, my writing is not for everyone. Um, okay. I think that we, we, you know, everyone everyone has an audience. I'm not for everyone. <laughs> so, um, and what I mean by that is that, um, you know, I have an audience. I, you know, I, I, and this goes, I mean, I have a story for everything, but I, I remember having a friend who workshopped a piece and um, it wasn't well received. And the piece went on to be nominated for the Pushcart Prize. So right. it just, but the audience of people that she workshopped it, that was not her audience. You know, the, the piece was an amazing piece, and it, um, it really focused, like, on black history and things like that. And the, and the audience that she um, workshopped the piece to didn't understand. So I think that sometimes people are not going to understand my writing. That's okay. I think as a writer, you have to be thick-skinned. You have to um, make sure that when you, you know, you want to be published, that you're looking for publications that support work and people like you. So 
Yeah, I don't I don't take it offensive or I don't take it personal if someone doesn't enjoy my work. I mean, there's plenty of other people that will. All right. <laughs> Nicely stated. <laughs> there are plenty of other people that will. I like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Does writing energize or exhaust you as you think about your process? Um, probably a little bit of both. So um, <laughs> I think that sometimes I'm a better writer than I am uh, as a speaker. And I think really? sometimes when I'm – I think so. (laughs) So I think that it's so hard for me to articulate my feelings sometimes. And even when I'm writing, sometimes that gets in the way of it. Like I know I want to say something is is there, but I got to find the right word for it. So some, some, and, and that's and that's when I tell you, like, I take my hands off of the poem and then I have yes. to, like, either let it go and let it be what it is or I, I have to come back to it at a later time. I don't like to get obsessive and I don't want the process to be exhausted, uh, exhausting because poetry for me is my relief. You know, it's, um, again, it helps me process things. So I, it doesn't need to be necessarily exhausting. Um, but yeah, it can be at times. Well, the, back to your speaking voice. That's one of my questions. What is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? Well, I definitely think they work hand in hand. Um, so okay. my writing voice. So my writing voice always assists my speaking voice to tell the story the way it is. So it's like my writing voice is the employer, and my speaking voice is the employee. And they work together to make my poetry. Yeah, and like they work together to make my poetry what it is. And I really think that it is the job of my speaking voice to make sure that my writing voice is proud, to stop when it's supposed to stop, to emphasize certain words, and even convey, you know, the emotion just the way my writing voice imagined it. I have. You're the first person who's ever explained it that way so clear. I like that. Yeah. I like that. that. <laughs> well, you're great. You're great. <laughs> please, please share another yeah. one. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'll actually share one that I wrote for my youngest son um, because – like he said, he says, I have to have an equal amount of poems written for him <laughs> in the big one. <laughs> okay. So you have to make things equal. <laughs> okay, so this is called Before You Were My Child from Makai. Before you were my child, heaven draped you across my womb. Your anatomy was copied from two imperfect beings and became a deep crease bent in the middle of a full-size mattress. You were curved like your grandmother's back as you rolled your sentiments into me, inhale by exhale by inhale. And I exhaled a field of poems and expressive masterpieces into your laughter, your eyes, the birthmark on your bottom. You were a sky then, coarse coils of curls and Caribbean roots. Your movements jerked like Sunday's chicken. My Woody, my Bambino, You were always mine. Before you were my child, you belonged to your father and his father's philosophy of soundless performances. You sat in my womb as an open door. Your movement was your only speech. You were the breeze that snuck in between the strands of my hair, 
the thin threads of gray on your daddy's chest, a mirage of olive trees I have always wanted to plant. You were the tears rolling down the face of your ancestors and the meadow of cactuses shaped like a guitar. And when you untied yourself from the cords that held us together, you traveled over an overextended passage above a beating heart, smooth and sweet, a cloud wrapped in a velvety blanket, pulling on my breath, commanding daybreak. Finished. That's an exquisite poem. Thank you. Where do you hail from? Oh, so I was born in Barbados. Um, the in okay. the Caribbean, but I came to um I lived in Harlem when I first um came from Barbados. I lived in Harlem for most of my childhood, and now I live in the South Bronx. Now, how has living in the South Bronx, hailing from Barbados, how does how does it reflect in your work? Yeah, so I think it gives me a unique perspective, right? So. I really um, appreciate growing up in America, but I love that I have that um, those Caribbean roots as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think that definitely makes me special. It allows me sometimes I, I you know I listen to my mom talk and I love the dialect. You know, um, <laughs> I love like that. You know, going back and forth between the different dialects and um, just the different cultures. I love it. And I think that it, it helps me to, um, what's the word, like really kind of like um, have a sense of compassion for different people. So, like, you know, I, of course, I have an American accent, but my mom and my brother, they were much older when they came to America. So, like, I've seen some of the um, the experiences that they've had having an accent or, um you know, having a difficult time getting used to the the culture here, and so I I feel like the sense of compassion that I've had or I've always had for them I have for other people. So it kind of helps me be open minded about different cultures, and I think that really helps me to connect to different cultures a lot better too. Oh wow, very nice. Let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. Okay. back. I am here with the fascinating Kay Bell. Her new book, Diary of an Intercessor, is available now. Kay, where can one purchase your book? Um, it can be purchased on Amazon and through the publisher, Finish in Line Press. All right, very nice. You know, all writers have several words that they use 
over and over in their work. What are three of your absolute favorite words to use? Oh, that's a good word. And I, and I catch myself reusing these words, too. Um, definitely <laughs> flesh. <laughs> okay. I don't know which my, fasc- my fascination um, with using the word flesh. Um, what else? Um, I would say body. I mean, I know it's such a simple word, but I feel like I'm always using the word body. Um, and it's not necessarily a word, but I have a, a, the tendency of using a lot of ampersands in my in my writing. I, I don't right. know what I actually have a big wall decor in my house of an ampersand. So I don't know what's my fascination with it. I just love it. <laughs> right. Well, share another poem. Okay, um, so this is one of my newer poems, and it's called um, Weekday Hymn. I pedal the hymns inward in effort to pray myself open, to bring nostalgia to the verses that set me aside, and to feel connected to tomorrow or anything other than fume and extinction. But this blue dress is distracting. And what I cannot fathom is whose hands would stitch such an unbending cotton, whose ragged thumbprints decided they wanted to be part of my skin, and whose bullet bruises survived the mechanics of time and manufacturing to present this weekday song. And so now I'm forced to clinch and carry the fabric as a slight devastation, praying its motives will change. Only now I know this is how you become undressed, anchored to this quiet, archived in the history of the wilderness, fearing God will forget your name. Finish. God will forget your name. Wow. You know, Kay, so much is happening in the world in which we live. So much is happening. And you write about the good, bad, and indifferent of life. Mhm. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? To tell the truth, um, I I think that poets we can we are creative. We're naturally creative, but I think there definitely needs to be truth in our work. Um, that goes back to the love that I have for Nikki Giovanni. Um, picking up one of her books and just reading, you know, um. Her, her truth and how she just um, helped me to see the world clearer. I, th- I mean, I think that that's our job. Like, we should help people to see the world a bit more clearer. And I think sometimes people who don't write, um, I've always, you know, when I've shared certain things with them, certain poems, some people have told me before, um, but I didn't know how to say it. And so I think that when we share our truth, it helps other people connect to their truth. And I think that's an amazing thing to do for someone. It's very nice. I appreciate that. And yes, it is. Yes, it is. You know, writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to their audience. Others write because to stay silent is not an option. Why Mm. do you write, Kate? I definitely believe when you said to stay silent is not an option, that made me think of Audre Lorde, um, your silence will not protect you. 
So absolutely, I think silence is definitely not an option for me. Um, I've always been very assertive and outspoken, even to a fault, <laughs> even when it got okay. me in trouble. Um, I, you know, I remember wearing Black Lives Matter T-shirts at work and getting pulled in the office, being told that it was inappropriate before it was cool to say Black Lives Matter. So I, you know, for me writing, you know, I write because um, it gives me the space to be who I want to be. But also, again, it allows me to connect with my innermost, deepest self. And, um, yeah, and to just, like, communicate that with the world. Oh, wow. I can be as outspoken as I want to be in my poems, you know? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And and I'm glad you're outspoken in your poetry because it works. Please share another piece. Okay. So this poem is called Anne. It's a short poem. And the person behind the counter is a man, and he reminds me of my father. And he is a gray-haired, pretentious bastard. And he is talking slow and careful. And somehow I've begun to romanticize our meeting and take him in the closet to dream his shirt off. And he is mine. And we fall apart between spring and summer. And I begin again. And then the man says, Six dollars and fifty cents. And I look up. Father is gone. And I recognize there's something about loving a man who's hurt you. Finish. Describe your relationship with poetry. How has it developed and changed since you began writing? I think that, and I think that it necessarily, I'm, I'm trying to get it back to the where, what it was in the beginning. So when I first started writing, okay. I wrote only for myself, right? I didn't really think anyone would really, you know, read it. And um, I think as I've grown as a writer, sometimes I think about what my audience would like. And recently I realized that, I don't need to be a people pleaser, right? Mm. And so, of course, you want to sell books and you want people to connect with your work. But at the same time, poetry is such a personal, um, and like, a, 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 such an, a personal thing for me. It's a, um, a personal pleasure. So I don't know if this sounds, um, I don't know how it's going to sound, but for me, I need Worry. to please myself first. <laughs> yes. And then, yes, I'm um, you. you know. Yeah, so I, you know, yeah, so basically that's how I feel about it. I just need to, like, it's changed from the sense where I only focus on, you know, writing for myself to now I'm writing for an audience. But I'm definitely working to, you know, make sure that um, I don't become superficial, you know, Um, that I'm not writing to be light, that I'm still writing for myself. How difficult is it, how difficult was it moving into the publishing part of poetry, getting published? You know, and what advice would you is, give new artists? This, so it wasn't really difficult for me. 
um, I don't know if I kind of like bumped into it. So the way my first book I published is that um, an editor published um, a few of my poems in one of her um, books and one of her her magazines. And um, I started working with her. And then she asked me later on if I was interested um, in publishing a chat book. And so that's how I published the first book. I hadn't submitted it anywhere. You know, she approached me and asked me. Um, she said that she liked my work and that she was interested in publishing it. And then the second, um, the Diary of an Intercessor, I did, I was submitting it to different publishers. And there was one other publisher who offered to publish it before Finishing Line Press. But I don't know. I just wasn't, I didn't, it, I didn't feel comfortable with the with the publisher, and um, yes. I decided to sit and wait, and then finish in line press, asked me, and then I went ahead and published it. So I didn't have like you know like this long drawn out process. It kind of like I submitted it to a couple of places, and and two places picked it up, and I chose one. So I I think that my advice to people would be first I always say. When, especially when it comes to poetry, to kind of like um, publish poem, like single poems first, and kind of like um, make sure that you you you're kind of familiar with the um, the you know the the people that you're sending it to. Make sure that when you're, you're sending your work to um, places that publish writers like you, that's number one. You want to be represented well. You want to work with an editor who. Um, who kind of like shares your vision that can see, you know, um, what you're aiming both times. I, I worked with people that were really um, worked well with me and they saw my vision. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a stressful situation. Both, both books, um, the process was really um, pretty, you know, pretty easy and straightforward. No drama. No, and that's what's important. No drama. I like that. I like that. Please share yeah. another poem with us. Please share another poem. Okay. So, I'm going to read um, a poem that I wrote for my brother. And I tend to write poems for people a lot. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> another one of my, my little things. Um, so, this poem is called We Are Loners. For my brother. You told mommy you hated her today, but I knew that was a lie. You held that Heineken bottle tightly like your nephew clinging to your favorite blanket. Your sturdy hands were shaking, and I witnessed the privacy of your afflictions in your dialect and sweaty forehead. There's a story to tell. I promise one day I will tell the world that all the odds were against you. Barbados raised you alone. I will not leave out the flawlessness of your swaying body against cartel tunes or the codfish and rice of lentils in the winter. The liability isn't all yours. I know the pain rides you, but we are loners, brother. We live in a land where we must honor thy mother and thy father, or we won't live long enough to see our tears trace the city like bridges. There are no morals to your story, only a restricted beginning 
forging an appetite for women and children with hostilities. But you are not the prodigal son. You are a father and brother rising before day to iron your clothes and begin your hustle because the early bird catches the worm and you are destined to fly above lifeless expectations, speaking the language of the stars. You were never an illusion or fiasco. You have not failed. When you spoke to mommy today, those lies didn't banish my revelation. You wanted to be held, for real. But instead, you drank your Heineken and sat down. Mommy sobbed in the corner, and I smoked a cigarette at the table as our sister was yelling something about telling you to leave while our children were asleep in the back room. Who will tell your story? There are Bayesian dreams dying on the inside of a man. There are remnants of, your, of his nightmares staring his nostalgic sorrow. Marijuana-stained secrets relate into his insensible one-night stands, and there are people walking by doing nothing. We are loners, brother. We rip the flesh off bones of truth. There are hills in our back and jungles in our souls. We walk on frayed ankles, born as Bayesian pariahs and American misfits. We scream quietly. We know no mothers or fathers or the love that comes in between. No one understands us. I sung a black girl song today, but tomorrow I vow I will tell your story. Finished. I'm going to comment that your voice was so different in that poem. Yeah. Um, yes. Maybe I, there's a tenderness that I have for my brother. Yes. So that might, yes. that, I, I, that might be what I it is. I felt it. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah. I felt it. It's very, very, very beautiful. And very beautiful. And, and I don't think that I've ever read him that poem before. <laughs> so, oh, really? Um, maybe I should read it to him. No. <laughs> Wow. Well, I felt it. I felt the difference. I felt the change. Yeah. I really did. This next question is, is, is really subjective. As you think about the art and craft of poetry, what makes a poem good? Hmm. That is um, subjective. Um, for me, sometimes what I notice is that I think less is more. I think sometimes okay. that, so I think that um, for me when I'm writing, I feel like I need to give some of the details, not all of the details. I think that the, the reader should do some work too. So, um, you know, I think that a lot from sometimes when I'm reading poetry by others, like that's something I'm always telling them, like, <clears throat> take out some words, don't be too wordy. Um, a, a good, good poem allowed for me at the end of the poem, uh, the reader is going to go back and read it again. There's something like there, there's like they didn't get enough of it the first time, you know? And I think that for me, that means that I need to leave some of the work for them to figure some things out, to ask questions after, if that yes. makes sense. 
It does make sense. It does. You've written two books. What is the most difficult part of the artistic process? Hmm. Um, I guess you mean like when, like putting the books together? Or just maybe it's more general than that. What's the most difficult part of being a poet? Hmm. I think that poets that we see things that other people don't okay. see. All right. Um, and I think that sometimes puts us at odds <laughs> with the with okay. uh, with others. I think that's probably the for me that's probably the hardest part of being a poet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, even sometimes with my husband, I'm like, "Did you see that?" And he's like, "No, we're looking at the same thing." And I'm like, "You don't see that?" And so I think sometimes, <laughs> you know, it stirs like a loneliness. You know? Yes, it does. So, yeah. It does. It does. Please share one more. Well, no, actually, we've got about seven minutes left. I want you to share more than one more poem. But please share another. Please share and favor us with another. Okay, so um, this poem is called Bronx Hymn. Um, and it starts with a quote by um, George Lewis Borges. Um, I think that's how you say his last name. I should know how to say it if I quoted him. Okay, so was there a garden or was the garden a dream? After Harlem, it was you and the fractured walkways where people desperately aspired and played bachata and made the concrete home and where the clothes hung from windows and the metro was booming and where God rang his music from the church on top the hill and where the weeds were in remorse and paradise was a portrait. It was you, and the rubble of creation on Ryer and Washington Ave, barely a hum in a fetching memory, scarcely a gaze of yellow glory. It was you, gone, finished. What do you hope readers get from encountering your poems? Well, definitely I hope that... um, it, it it makes them think about life. Um, okay. I hope that they feel some type of connection to it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm hoping, and again, I mean, I think poetry and how people connect to it is their own personal experience. But, you know, when I read poetry, it's something that I definitely want to connect to. So I want people to be able to connect to my work and, um, you know, maybe feel a sense of healing. You know, um, yeah, feel a sense of healing because poetry has the ability to heal. Yes, it does. You know, May is National Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm planning a program where I focus on poetry and mental health. So I believe that mm-hmm. poetry has healing powers. I really, really do. Yes. I may call you back for that one. Absolutely. So just, just, just know, I may call you for that one. Okay. Uh, Okay. How active are you on social media? I've gotten pretty active within the last year or so, so I'm kind of proud of myself for that. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think it affects the way that you write? Or does it? Um, yeah, I'm not sure if it does. Um, I think that, or maybe it does. I have to think about that. I think that um, I do follow some poetry pages. And, again, yes. I think the, for me, I'm always inspired by others. 
So I think that, yeah, sometimes when I do see, like, certain um, poems pop up on my feed, I'm like, oh, wow, like, I need to go write, <laughs> you know? So um, it does somewhat, but I'm not, like, a, a social media fanatic. So, um, yeah, it All does right. in, in small ways it does, yeah. Okay. Well, we're almost closing in on the finish line, but I'd like to invite you to share one more piece with us. I'd love it if you would. Okay. Um, so, okay. So I'll share kind of a love poem. I don't write love poetry, but this is as close yeah. as it gets. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this poem is called Wait for Us. Until the butter softens on the toast, until the doorbell rings and it's a package that needs a signature, until we are booked and our pages are dust, until the shower runs long enough to steam the mirror, until the cat lurches on the sofa, hungry, needy, human, until the curtains aren't hiding our blemishes, until we are in repose but nothing's happening, until our feet are warm, until we are bleeding truth, until the paint is peeling off the wall, until we begin to laugh again, until we are water dancing into ice cubes, until we are poetry, until we know the stars will come, until the chaos has made us one, until we are invisible, until we're in the middle of the living room and the earth is now our flesh. Finish. Wow. Amazing. Thank You're you. amazing. You're amazing. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. I'd ask you to read more and more and more and more, but I won't do that. <laughs> I won't do that. <laughs> it was but, such a pleasure uh, being here. I'm I'm glad. I'm glad and I want you to come back. I mean, anytime you want to come back. I wish you nothing but the best in terms of your poetic journey, in terms of your career as a poet. You've got what it takes, and I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. All right. Well, until our listening audience, until next week, let poetry. Take care, everybody. Good night. You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, and make sure to catch our next episode. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.